have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Romans chapter 5, starting verse 6 and going through verse 11. This will be the final week in our series on uh, the call to worship, which we call Welcome to Church. It's how we welcome you into this room every week. Uh, and I wanted to talk about the texts behind those phrases that we say every time. We're finishing that up this week with, To all who sin, we need a Savior. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Some problems in life just seem to go together. You can't really have one without having the other. For instance, if you have a flat tire, you need a spare. If you have a broken arm, you need a cast. If you're thirsty, you need water. If you're a fan of the Texas Longhorns, you need psychiatric evaluation. <laughs> if you sin, you need a savior. Sinning and needing a savior is actually the most fundamental to the phrases behind our call to worship. Coincidentally, it's also the one with the least explicit textual reference, as you've seen. All the others seem to be, you read this verse, that's the phrase. This one's more of a concept, more foundational, more fundamental to everything we do when we get here on a Sunday morning. When we're called into the worship of our Savior, this is ultimately the reason we heed that call. And it's easily the most universal of our phrases as well. We call all into the worship of our Savior who sin and need a Savior. This call goes out to all who sin. What is it to sin? For how often we talk about sin in the church, and we talk about it often, most of us probably don't have a very good definition of what sin actually is. And honestly, after reading a bunch of them in the last few weeks, most theologians are in the same boat. The concept is so pervasive in Scripture, and in reality, it has so many tendrils, so many dimensions, and such a wide effect, that to slap a really simple definition on it is quite difficult. But after thinking about this for a long time, consulting many different definitions this past few weeks in study, here's the best definition I've got for you right now. Sin is the absence of God's natural design. Just as darkness doesn't positively exist, but it's merely the absence of light, sin is not a substantial thing in and of itself, but it's rather the lack of that thing. The absence of anything which coincides with the nature of God. From our text, we can see that sin involves weakness, ungodliness, unrighteousness, a lack of goodness, and it makes you unworthy of a substitute. To sin is to be weak. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, to sin is to be weak, it's to, to be lacking in God's strength. While sin and weakness certainly have some physical dimensions, in this passage, I think the reference to weakness is directly speaking to a lack of faith. Before we get to this verse in chapter 5, verse 6, Paul's discussing the example of Abraham, who didn't weaken in his faith. 
before coming to us who were still weak before Christ died for us. According to Paul, then, the weak one isn't the one who's weak physically. The weak one is the one who's struggling in sin. The weak one is the one who's trusting anything other than Christ. And the strong one isn't the one who's physically strong. The strong one's the one who has faith in God. To sin is to be weak and a lack of faith. And that makes you ungodly. The rest of verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This lack of faith, which makes you weak, also makes you ungodly. Just as weakness is a lack of strength, it's a lack of faith, ungodliness is a lack of godliness. A sinner doesn't act like God. He doesn't think like God. He doesn't have a heart after God's own heart. And who he is, deep down, is fundamentally opposed to God's nature. He simply is not godly. And that makes him unrighteous. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Whereas one would scarcely die for a righteous person, the implication here is that these people, the ones that Paul's writing to here, they don't meet that criteria. They aren't a righteous person that one may possibly die for. Again, we, we still don't get a positive definition of what sin is. We don't get to read and say sin is blank. But instead, we get a negation. Sin is not righteous. It's unrighteous. Whatever right is, sin is not that. This concept in Scripture is most often applied to God as an example of his faithfulness, his righteousness, his steadfast nature in doing what is right. That's what his righteousness is. Sin simply doesn't do what's right. It's not faithful. It's not true. And it's not good. The rest of verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Still, the assumption is that though maybe someone might die for a good person, Paul's readers in Romans, they're not a good person. They're not good people. They don't qualify for one that someone may possibly die for. They're not good. Whatever is good, they are not that. That brings us to a point here worth making, which relates to our definition of sin from earlier. God is good. Fundamentally, holy and truly, he is good and he does good. More than that, he created the idea of goodness. You wouldn't know what good is if it weren't for God. Good wouldn't exist if it weren't for God. The very idea and concept of goodness is the overflow of who God is. Because of who God is, that is what good is. When you see something that is good, you are seeing something that's like God. So now, when we rightly define that which is good, we have identified something that lines up with who God actually is. He is the definition. He is the example. He is the template of everything that's good. To be good is to be like God. And for many of us, when we think about goodness, we tend to think about whether we are good people or not. We tend to think about that backwards. We think goodness is just the absence of badness. That as long as I don't do really bad things, that makes me good. And that's not true. Good is a thing. Good exists. Good is like God. Anytime you do something that isn't like God, that's bad. Goodness is what exists. And we think that goodness... 
rather than just being the absence of badness. We think that goodness is some standard out here that we have to figure out. We have, to, we have God, and then we have whatever is good. And we've got to figure out whatever is good. And then even sometimes we think that once we figure that out, we should apply that to God and say, well, is God actually good? Does he meet my standard of goodness? Does he do things that I think a good God would do? We've got that backwards. Goodness is godliness. To be good is to be like God. God is good, and in him there is no shade or shadow of change. There is no darkness at all. He is light itself. He's good. That's why you cannot be good and also sin. To sin is to absolutely and totally be not good. And these Romans qualified. We qualify. Because you are not good, you are ultimately unworthy of a substitute. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because sin is not good. This passage says that those who are sinners are unworthy of a substitute. That though one might die for a good person, you are not good. And yet God died for you anyway. That while you were still sinner, while we were still not good, that's when Christ died for you. They're unworthy of anyone dying in their place. And that's why Christ dying for sinners shows God's love for sinners. Because by being sinners, they weren't worthy of anyone dying for them, much less Christ, much less the one who's perfect, much less God himself in the flesh. They didn't deserve anyone in their spot, much less the perfect one in their spot. And yet it happened anyway. So who sins? That's what sin is. Those are the effects of sin. That's what it looks like. But who are these people who sin? Well, surely, to some degree, you have heard that and thought, well, that's me. I sin. I've done that. Everyone sins. Both non-Christians and Christians sin. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. You see, none get out of this definition. If that's what sin is, we all do it. We all have done it. We all are sinners. Because to some degree, in one way or another, we are not like God. Non-Christians sin because their entire lives are marked by the absence of God's natural design. Their thoughts ignore God. Their hearts rebel against God. Their actions ignore God. Romans 8.8 8 makes this clear. Those who are in the flesh, not the spirit, but in the flesh, cannot please God. They sin and only sin. Because every moment of every day that they spend not believing... Every moment of every day that they spend not repenting, they are violating the natural design of God for their lives. They're not doing what he has naturally given them over to do. Non-Christian sin. But lest we hear that and think, oh, good, non-Christian sin. Christian sin. We still do it. Although positionally, when it comes to your identity, who you are in Christ, you have been justified in Christ. God no longer labels you a sinner. He calls you a son. 
He no longer counts your sins against you. Even though those things are true, you can and do still live outside of the natural design of God for your life. Very often. John Piper, in his definition of sin, defined it this way. He said, sin is the glory of God, not honored. It's the holiness of God, not revered. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The promises of God, not believed. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. And the person of God, not loved. Now, unless you honestly think that you avoid every one of those, every second of every day for your entire life, you should understand that you still sin, even as a Christian. But yet, we here in this room serve a Christ, we serve a God who saves sinners. That's why we begin every week saying to all who sin, because that is as universal as it gets. That's to everyone who walks in the room. To all who sin, the Christian and the non-Christian, this church welcomes you on behalf of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, who is the Savior, who will save you. So that call goes out to all who sin, but it also goes out to all who need a Savior. Now, as I said before, some problems in life just seem to go together. If you sin, you're in desperate need of a Savior. But what is it to need a Savior? According to our text, to need a Savior is to be one who's not justified before the Father, who is the object of God's wrath and is therefore God's enemy. To need a Savior is to lack justification. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Now been justified by his blood. Those who sin, who have not yet been justified have not yet received the Savior. So before the blood of Christ, these people that Paul was writing to were not justified. Justification is the act of God where he accepts Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. And therefore, because of the sacrifice of Christ in your place, he sees your sins as forgiven. Because when he looks at your sins, he sees the blood of Christ. He gives you Christ's righteousness So that now when he sees you, he no longer sees you and says sinner. He sees you and says saved. He sees you as having the goodness, the perfection, the righteousness of Christ applied to you on your behalf because of what he has done for you. To be justified is to make it as if you had never sinned at all. Because in the official books of God, which are never wrong, it says that you never did. It says that your book looks like Christ's book. That your sins are gone. And his righteousness is in their place. To need a savior is to not yet have this happen for you. It's to not yet have Christ's sacrifice applied to you. It's to not yet have your sins forgiven. It's to not yet be seen as having Christ's righteousness instead of your evil sins. You need a Savior 
if you lack justification before God. And you need this because you're the object of God's wrath in your sin. The rest of verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. When Christ saves, he saves you from the wrath of God. He doesn't save you from anything else or from anyone else. He saves you from his own justice. Because in his own justice, your sin is worthy of death. Your sin is worthy of hell. But yet we have Christ who saves us from that wrath. From his own wrath. This God who is perfect and holy and just cannot allow evil and sin to go unpunished. And if I could just make this a little bit more contextual, in a week when we have seen the things that we have, don't we want sin to be punished? Doesn't justice demand sin be punished? If sins went unpunished, God could not be just. There is no justice. Look around. We don't have it here. There isn't justice. But yet, because God is good, because he is just, because out of his justice, you receive his wrath, justice can exist. Our problem isn't that justice exists. Our problem is that because justice exists, we receive that justice. And yet, there's Christ, who received that justice in our place, on our behalf. That though he did not deserve it, he got it anyway. Because that justice still had to be doled out. When Christ saves, he saves from the wrath of God. So because you're a sinner, because you've not been justified, you are the object of God's wrath. When his justice comes forth against sin, and it will, unless Christ has atoned for your sins... That justice is coming for you, just as much as it is against anyone else. You are ultimately the enemy of God, apart from his righteousness applied to you. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Without Christ's sacrifice, you are an enemy of God. But now, through Christ... You no longer have to be an enemy. The point of verse 10 is that God has chosen to love his enemies, to save his enemies, to die for his enemies, to make sure that his wrath doesn't get doled out even against those who deserve it, who are his enemies. But before we skip to that good news, but we'll get there. Before we get to you can be saved from the wrath of God, before we get to the part that's easy to say, the part that's easy to hear, We have to sit for a minute. We have to think for a second about the truths that make those other truths so great. We have to stare the fact in the face that without the blood of Christ, we are an ant under the boot of God. And it is a good and righteous thing for him to squish us. But Christ... But the gospel. But he loved his enemies. But he died for you while you were still a sinner. But his blood can be applied to you even now. That you can be saved from the wrath of God even now. That can come. 
But when it comes, it comes as salvation from the one who is delivering the justice against you. Hebrews 10, verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the God of the universe as the object of his wrath. That should scare us. To be in that situation, to be a sinner who has not yet been justified, is to be in desperate need of salvation. To be in desperate need of someone to save you from that wrath that you deserve. So who needs a savior? Well, everyone who sins needs a savior. You cannot sin without needing a savior. And we've already covered everyone sins. There's no one who doesn't sin. Non-Christians certainly do. And so they certainly and urgently need a Savior. But Christians still need that same Savior as well. Non-Christians obviously need that Savior because by definition, they are sinners who lack justification. That's what makes you a non-Christian rather than a Christian. Being a sinner who has not been justified. Their nature, their thoughts, their heart, their actions make them objects of God's wrath and therefore God's enemies. They need a Savior desperately. And what's worse, they very likely have no idea about the predicament they're in. They very likely have no understanding of their own situation. They have no cognition of the justice that's coming toward them. It's almost like there should be some group of people out there who understand their situation, who have been told what their situation is, who have been told how to save them out of that situation, and who have actually gone through a similar thing themselves. If only, if only there was a group of people, maybe who gathered weekly to talk about these things, who were able to come together and decide, you know what, just how I was saved out of that same situation, I should try to give someone else that same good news that saved me from that situation. If only God had thought of having a people like that to be able to do his mission and to accomplish his work, through his power, on this earth, in this time. I should tell him about that. Oh, wait, he did. That's us. They might not know the predicament they're in, but we do. They might not understand the justice that's coming toward them, but we do. They might not know what it looks like to be saved out of that predicament, but we do. So rather than just hearing this and saying, oh, man, that really stinks for them. Hmm. That doesn't feel good. Applebee's? Chili's? Olive Garden? No, we don't have Olive Garden. We should hear that and think, it's my job to go tell them. It's my job to share who he is with them. That's part of why you're still here. There are other reasons why Christians don't just immediately go to heaven, but one of them is because you have a job to do. One of them is because you are called to go out and share the same good news that you've received with everyone around you. You're called to witness it. We know the God who is their enemy. We know his power and his might, but we also know his love and his grace. We know the full severity of their situation. We've read it, we've heard it, and we've experienced the exact salvation they need. What a plan. What a good opportunity 
that God has in Christ to not only save us sinners from our sin, but to commission us to go out that others might be saved as well. We are sent out among the beggars as those who are beggars who have finally found some food so that we can tell them where we got it. We preach the Savior to those unbelievers who need that Savior. But that same gospel, that same message, that same Savior, we need to preach that to ourselves as well. Christians still need that same gospel, that same Jesus, that same Savior. No, we don't need it in the same way, but we do still need him. We have been justified, so our sins are no longer counted against us. That is absolutely true for forever. That cannot be changed. You can't lose your salvation, so he doesn't have to save us over and over. We don't have to re-repent and be re-saved over and over. He saves us once and for all, just as he died once and for all. But now that we see him, now that we have him, we understand that our very existence, our entire lives right now today, are due to him. We owe it back to him. It's his. He bought it with a price. It's no longer yours. It's no longer your own. And you aren't giving it back to him as a way to repay him because you can't do that. You're giving it back to him as a way to worship what he has already done for you. What he's already done in you. Look again at verse 10. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, this verse is talking about those who have been reconciled. Those who have been justified. Those who have been saved. And it says that our salvation continues for us through the life of Christ. Whereas his death took the place of our death, now his life should take the place of our life. That just as he lived, now we live. Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20 says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, even once you've been saved, you still need that same Savior in your life right now. You still need him for the very breath that you breathe right now. The gospel not only saves you, but it now sustains you for the rest of your life. So to all who need a savior, this church welcomes you every week on behalf of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, who is the savior that you need. He's the very one you need, the perfect one you need, the only one who could do the job. And he did it. He is the Savior. He saves, he reconciles because of who he is and what he's done, both his person and his work. Look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He is the Savior in who he is because he's God. He can save sinners from God because he is God. While all of Scripture continually shows us this truth, we can get a glimpse of that specifically here in verse 11. We rejoice in God, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we rejoice in Jesus, we're rejoicing in God through Jesus. You cannot rejoice in Jesus without also rejoicing in God because Jesus is God. When God works... 
He works from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. So when God saves, he saves from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. You can't rejoice in the Father, Son, or Spirit without rejoicing in God, because the Father, Son, and Spirit are God. So Christ can save from the wrath of God, because Christ is God. It's his own wrath that you're being saved from. He is God in his person, and he is the Lord. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When he saves you, he reveals his power toward you as the one who is the Lord of all, the master of all. He rules all of creation and is sovereign over all of salvation, the Lord of all and master of everything. So when you are saved by him, he becomes the Lord and master, not only of the entire universe, but of your entire life as well. It's who he is. So you should acknowledge him as such. You should live like that's actually true. You should understand that when he did that, he did that for you. Because he is the Christ. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As the God-man who has come to save, he reveals himself to be the Messiah, the one who is the Christ. It's his title, who he simply is. He was prophesied as the one who would come to crush the serpent's head and save God's people from sin and death. And through his perfect life, atoning death, In victorious resurrection, he has done exactly what he came to do. He's done what the Christ was supposed to do in his work. So, because of who he is, he is the Savior in what he has done. His sacrifice on the cross took your place. You should have died for your sin, and you needed to be saved from your sin. So Christ took your place in a way that only he could have. And when he took your place, he reconciled you to God through whom we have now received reconciliation. You are no longer an enemy of God. You are no longer under his wrath. For all enmity between you has been removed in Christ. Whereas before you were enemies unworthy of death, he said, that enemy unworthy of death I love. That enemy unworthy of death I'm going to save through my death. That you might no longer be an enemy but a son. And he saved you. That's why he came and it's what he's done. That's why we are in this room every week. The ultimate reason we still gather is to worship him every week. Because he saved us. Because we were sinners in need of a savior and we got one. He's here. He's done that for us. So we gather every week as a reminder of who he is and what he's done in the worship of him. It's why we begin every week reminding everyone in this room, those who are members here and those who are not, those who are Christians here and those who are not, that when you come here, you are welcome here. Because to all who sin and need a Savior, this church welcomes you on behalf of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, who is the Savior that you need. Let's pray.